Titus chapter three. Let me just give you a, a brief context here. Uh, the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to Titus. He was a church planter on the island of Crete. Crete was not a easy place to live. In fact, by their own admissions, the Cretans described themselves as evil beasts, liars, gluttons. It was full of drunk pirates, and it was a very, very hard place to plant a church. So you folks up here in North Spokane, you're not doing so well. I mean, you're doing fine, right? I mean, it's, it's a lot easier to plant a church perhaps up here than it was in the island of Crete. But Paul gives some great practical instructions to Titus on how to establish a local church. And uh, over the course of the book of Titus, uh, you can read that, but particularly in our text this morning, uh, Paul also gives some very specific instructions and encouragement that was good for the people then and good for us today. So with that, let me pray, and then we'll jump in to our text this morning. Our great God and heavenly Father, we come to your word asking and believing in faith that you will speak to us, that you will tell us, Lord, what we need to hear, and even more, that you will tell us what we need to know, you will tell us what we need to believe. So Father, cut through the distractions, may we not hear a man speaking on a stage from a book, but may we hear the very voice of God speaking the very word of God. And may your word pierce our hearts and in all things lead us to the cross. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Oh, you better watch out. You better not cry. And you better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. And it just gets worse from there. Because he sees you when you're sleeping. And he knows when you're awake. And yes, he even knows if you've been bad or good. So be good, for goodness sake. That's the scariest Christmas song ever. It's downright creepy, if you ask me. I don't know why we sing it all the time. I don't know why it's so popular. Do any of us really care whether we are judged by Santa to be either good or bad? I mean, is that, is that what Christmas, is that really what Christmas is all about? Is that what we're thinking about when we think about Christmas? Now, the truth is we think about a lot of things at Christmas, Christmas parties, Christmas gifts to give and receive, singing Christmas songs, Christmas caroling, Christmas cookies, Christmas pajamas, maybe even, if you're lucky, an afternoon Christmas nap. All of these things are good and fine and well. They all have their place. There's many practical enjoyments of Christmas. Yet as God's people, believers in Jesus Christ, as Christians, we can do better than this. We ought to think deeply and carefully about Christmas. Even more, we ought to think deeply and carefully about our God at Christmas. Because if we fail to do that, then well, we will have missed the point completely. So this would be an appropriate time, wouldn't you agree, to think deeply and carefully about God. As you think about God this morning, what comes into your mind? Many years ago, A.W. Tozer wrote what 
that what comes into our minds when we think about God is perhaps the most important thing about us. So I wonder how you think about God this morning. Maybe God seems a bit distant to you. I mean, he's there, but, but he's a bit out of reach, and maybe there's a, a growing distance between you and him. Perhaps you think God is, is demanding. He's harsh. He's a far less jolly version of Santa Claus, and yes, he has standards, and his standards are not changing. I wonder if, if some of you here wonder if perhaps God has not quite made up his mind about you yet. You're in. You're, you're a Christian. He's forgiven you. You're a child of God, but the truth is you, you probably spend far too much time thinking that, well, he's probably just putting up with you. He's probably just tolerating you. He's probably generally just disappointed with you. When you think about God, especially as you think about God this Christmas, what do you think about? In our text here in Titus chapter 3, Paul tells us what he's thinking about God, and he tells us in actually just three words, and with those same three words, he actually gives us the very point and purpose of Christmas. Now, you might be thinking, Christmas, Brinkman, I don't see any Christmas in this text in Titus. I mean, where are the angels? There are no shepherds. Where's the star? Where's the wise men? There's no mention of a donkey. There's no mention of a trip to Bethlehem. Doesn't even mention a baby being born in a manger or a king. This may not be a, a traditional Christmas passage, but I hope that what you'll see here and what we'll see together here is that this passage has, has everything to do with Christmas because it has everything to do with God. And so Paul tells us here in just three words what he's actually thinking about God. And these three words, brothers and sisters, they're not just the center point of this text. They're not just the, the center of this passage. These three words are, in fact, the very summary of the gospel, the very summary of the message of salvation, the point of Christmas right here tucked away in Titus chapter 3. When the apostle Paul thinks about God, what comes to his mind? Verse 5, he saved us. He saved us. So when Paul, it's not just that Paul thought about God, this is what Paul knew to be true about God. He saved us. Now this language of saving or being saved, I think we're familiar with to, to some degree. We, we use that terminology. If you forgot your book with your study notes this last week and you called a friend and she let you borrow hers and as a result you aced the test, you you would you'd thank her, you'd say, wow, thank you, you really saved me. If, if you like baseball, then you're, you'll know that when the starting pitcher goes out of the game and a reliever comes in and he closes out the game and the team wins, that reliever gets what? A save. And if you're a good reliever, you, you'll, you'll, you'll save 30 or 40 games a year. That probably makes you a Hall of Famer. Maybe you forgot your wedding anniversary. And so you get that happy anniversary text from your sibling that morning which gave you enough time to put together a really elaborate plan for your spouse. And so later that night you send that text to your sibling to say, thank you, thank you, thank you. You have no idea how much I love you right now because you saved me or my marriage or at least my week. 
So at some level, we get the concept of being saved. When Paul says, he, that is God, saved us, what does he mean by that? I mean, when God saves us, does he just kind of get us out of a tight spot that we kind of found ourselves in? When God saves us, does he save us from other people, ourselves? Maybe the most important question for us to consider this morning is why? Why does God save us in the first place? Why must God save us in the first place? And Paul's answer to that we read here in verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice, and then be hated by others and hating one another. Now, some today hear Paul's words and say, wow, Paul, thanks for speaking your truth, sort of, but clearly not all of us are as depressed as you clearly were here, and not all of us struggle with such low self-esteem. I mean, this is a very unflattering, dismal view of humanity, isn't it? And if verse 3 is true, then all of us, all humanity, is in a very, very perilous condition because our relationship with God was a colossal mess. So understand, church, this is not Paul using hyperbole. This is not Paul exaggerating. This is not Paul either being hypothetical or theoretical either, as if he's kind of just saying, well, think about the worst person that's ever lived, and yeah, you're all kind of more like that person. You're kind of trending in that direction. No, what Paul is actually saying here in verse 3 is that you and I were actually guilty of these sins. You and I were actually living this way. That doesn't mean that we committed every last sin on this list. And it doesn't mean that we committed every possible sin there ever was, for we know even one sin at one time was enough for us to be judged and found guilty by a holy God. So Paul here is simply acknowledging the truth. This is who we once were. This was all of us in our natural state. We, that is, the redeemed, the people of God, were once foolish. And that word here means ignorant. It really means warped. In other words, we were, we were spiritually warped. John says we actually loved darkness rather than light, John 3.19. Paul wrote in, in Romans 1.21 that we became twisted in our minds and disordered in our emotions. The Protestant reformer Martin Luther, commenting on that passage in Romans 1, said that we human beings have all curved in on ourselves. Brothers and sisters, the result of curving in on ourselves is that we have become slaves. That is, there's no escape. We are in bondage to the various passions and pleasures of our lives and of our hearts. And so what do foolish disobedient, spiritually warped people who reject God do whatever we want. Whatever feels good or seems good in the moment, rejecting God, opposing God, following your passions, as Paul says here, and this is the big cultural lie, that does not lead to freedom. That will never lead to freedom, in fact. It always, always, always leads to spiritual bondage, and eventually death. Because our relationship with God then was such a colossal mess, it's no surprise that our relationship with others was also 
a mess. Paul says, we were once passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. One of the more visible expressions of godlessness, it's actually not how we treat God. It's sometimes the terrible way that we treat our fellow human beings. I mean, we see it on the playground from from a very early age. As you grow a little bit older, you you witness it in that insatiable desire to win at all costs, whether that's in sports or in business or in politics, even if it means, look, in order for me to get ahead, I'm going to crush you. I'm going to stomp on you to get ahead. People really do hate each other. And Paul emphasizes this here in our text by, by using actually two different words for hate. It's almost like a double stack of hate. Hate upon hate. Literally, we are full of hate, which causes us then to hate others, to hate each other. And this is the culmination of our foolish lives. This is the culmination of our disobedient lives because at one point, we actually loathed each other. We hated each other because no one was able to give us what we actually really wanted. Esteem, honor, worship. Worship. You understand in your natural state, at the core of your being, apart from Christ, the real you wanted those around you to worship you. And you're going to hate me because I'm not all that committed to worshiping you. And the reason I'm not all that committed to worshiping you is because I'm far more interested in worshiping myself. And this is who we all once were. Now, brothers and sisters, this is heavy. I mean, let's be honest. Verse 3 is a real downer. And some of you may be thinking, man, I picked the wrong Sunday to show up to this church. Like some guy in the valley managed to suck every last bit of Christmas spirit out of me in like 12 minutes. Now Paul's point here is not to depress you, and it's certainly not my goal here is to to make you miserable for having come to church this morning. There's actually a hidden grace here in verse 3. It's actually helpful, and I would argue spiritually necessary for us as God's people to remember and even rehearse a little bit of who we once were. I think it's actually important for two reasons. Here's the first. Number one, it fuels our gratitude to God. It, it, it fosters a heart of thanksgiving and gratefulness towards Him. For most of us, maybe all of us here, in the next couple of weeks, there will be all kinds of Christmas celebrations and Christmas parties to go to, loaded with all kinds of material, tangible blessings. We can be thankful for all these things. But in the midst of all of those tangible, material blessings, how can we not pause and give thanks to our God for His spiritual blessings? He saved us. So you understand what that means. Apart from his divine rescue, verse 3 was our life verse. And you know the really hard thing? We didn't even get to choose our life verse. We were born into it. It's part of the consequence of the sin of Adam and Eve, that we have inherited sin. We have an inherited guilt. We are born sinners. 
So let's not live any longer in a pretend world or a sort of a make-believe world where we try to project our best version of ourselves. And oftentimes we spend a lot of time and energy and sometimes money making sure that the people around us only see the version of ourselves that, they, that we want them to see. You know, as Christians, we, we remember the depths of our depravity. We remember the depths of our great spiritual need. And we marvel at God's grace for us. Only when we come to grips with just how far we all once were from God can we actually begin to rejoice in how close he has come to us in Jesus Christ. Your heart will not treasure the grace of the gospel until you first come to terms with the guilt of all of your sins. Charles Spurgeon, well over 100 years ago, said this, too many think lightly of sin and therefore think lightly of the Savior. He who has stood before his God, convicted and condemned with the rope about his neck, is the man to weep for joy when he is pardoned, to hate the evil which has been forgiven him, and to live to the honor of the Redeemer by whose blood he has been cleansed. Reason number one, it fuels gratitude towards God. Here's the second reason why it's, it's good to reckon with verse three. It helps us to understand our non-Christian family members and friends so much better. I mean, it actually makes sense if, I mean, if, if you don't know Jesus, then Christmas is about Santa Claus or the Christmas spirit or the Christmas season. It's not about a savior coming to earth. So why would we expect a non-Christian to, to behave or to think differently than the nature that they actually have. And that's true of your neighbors, your colleagues at work, your, your children. Why would we expect someone who has rejected God and is enslaved spiritually to their sins to think like us and to act like us and to behave like us? Well, that doesn't mean that non-Christians can't be nice or kind or generous people. Sometimes they're the nicest people in the neighborhood. I Think of, of neighbors of mine that live down the block. They're wonderful people. They're wonderful neighbors. They're very, very kind and generous. But that doesn't change their heart. That doesn't change their nature. Niceness is not the same thing as being in a right relationship with the God who created you. So we can understand our non-Christian family members and friends very well. Why? Because we were once exactly like them. We were foolish. We were spiritually warped. We were disobedient. And we can extend to them the same grace and kindness and patience that Christ has already given to us. And that, might there, that, that right there might, might redeem some really hard Christmas parties or get-togethers with your family and friends. Now, Paul paints a frightening yet very realistic picture here in verse 3 of who we once were. And if our text ended in verse 3, brothers and sisters, and we all left and went home, none of us should come back next week. There'd be no point. We would be miserable people, among the most miserable on the planet, because we know what's true about us. We have a very big problem. We're sinners. We can't save ourselves. And according to verse 3, we can't rely on anybody else to come to our rescue and to save us. Why? Because they're exactly like we are. But the gospel changes everything. 
This is who we once were, but not who we are now. Right after this very, very dark description of humanity, bam, God bursts onto the scene. And he does it in a very peculiar way. Verse four, but when, when the frustration of God finally boiled over, but when God finally said, I have had enough of these people, when God finally exhausted every last ounce of, no. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us. That is great news. Our only hope is in the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior, and understand that there was a point in time when the goodness and loving kindness of God appeared. Yes, to be sure, this is intrinsic to who God is. This is who He is from the very beginning. But there was a moment when the kindness and love of God broke through into human history. And that moment was in the birth of Jesus in a manger that very first Christmas day. Jesus is the goodness and loving kindness of God made visible in human flesh. And to be sure, the the people had heard about the love of God and the kindness of God over the centuries. The prophets of God foretold it. Uh, the, uh, The promises of God guaranteed it. But in the appearing of God, the appearing of Christ in the birth of Jesus, God's kindness became so much more than a rumor. The the love of God became so much more than than a long-hoped-for, awaited promise. God delivered a person. God got physical. People could see this baby. They They could touch him. They could worship him. The Son of God appeared in human flesh, Again, God had always loved his people, but in the incarnation, God sent his son to be born, clothed in human flesh, to live as a human. Why? Ultimately, to provide atonement for the sins of humanity. Jesus, God in the flesh, was born in a crib. So yes, so that he would one day die on a cross. I mean, how great... How great is the kindness and love of God for you, for us? God saved us. Would any of us honestly say this morning that when we think about God, and even more when we think about Christmas, what what first really does come into our mind is the goodness and loving kindness of God for us? Now, maybe we'll get there eventually, but this is what Paul is thinking about as he thinks about God. And notice, when does the goodness and loving kindness of God appear? When we were were at our worst. We were the ones wallowing in our foolishness and disobedience and Rebellion, we were the ones engaging in toxic passions. We were the ones that were hating ourselves and, in fact, hating others, and God appeared. So he didn't wait. He didn't wait for us to get our spiritual act together. He didn't wait for you to become a member of a church and 
renew your commitment and start showing up a whole lot more regularly. No, God saw the ugliest, deepest, and most grotesque, self-righteous parts of us, and he saved us. When you were at your worst, friend, the love of Christ came to you. So that's why then as Christians, we're, we're actually not waiting around for the people around us to, for them to earn our love and kindness either. We love our spouse, we love our children, we love even our enemies. Why? Because we have been first loved by God. We forgive those that sin against us. Why? Because we have been forgiven in Christ. We extend kindness, even if it's not returned or not returned in the way that we had hoped for. Why? Because we have been shown inexpressible kindness by our God. So do you hear the, the thread of the good news? The good news of the gospel. It's, it's really good news for every day. The message of Christmas, it, it's not pray more, be more disciplined. Yes, start going to church, smile when you come. Prove that you're all in, and then God will prove that he's all in with you. No, the only thing, brothers and sisters, that we proved is that we were all far out, away from God. The gospel is God knows and sees you, and he loved you at your very, very worst, and he saved you. I mean, what kind of God does that? Our God. Your God does that. And Paul can hardly contain his excitement here. And so in verses 4 through 7, it's actually one long sentence in the Greek. It's one very long, profound thought. There's like zero punctuation. And so you just get the sense that Paul is bubbling over with joy. He's bubbling over with profound thanks at the salvation that God has given to him uh, through faith in Christ, verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to his own mercy. Is there, is there anything more to say, really? Well, just, there's actually just a little bit, and here it is. Here's the good news of Christmas. Here's actually the good news for every day. Jesus is not in verse 3, and you and I are not in verses 4 through 7. We do all the sinning in verse 3, and God in Christ does all the saving in verses 4 through 7, so we have no reason to boast. God is the, the only actor here in verses 4 through 7. He saved, that's the, that's the main verb of this long, theologically rich and gloriously good sentence, and Paul makes it clear, in case you were wondering and in case those Cretans were wondering, this is God's action. It's not ours. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. So brothers and sisters, that's the bullseye of the gospel here, the very heart of the gospel. I mean, you add or subtract or minimize or just flat out ignore verse 5, and you no longer have good news. You no longer have the truth of the gospel. God saved us, why? Not because of something good that he was able to tap into our hearts, but because he's good. Out of his goodness 
and His loving kindness and His mercy. That's the very reason for our acceptance before God. That is the ground of our confidence before God, the very basis for our hope. So when you think about God, what comes into your mind? I wonder how you might finish this sentence. God accepts me because. Or if you like, I'm good with God because. I'm good with God because I try really hard. God accepts me because I'm pretty sure he accepts my parents, and I'm kind of hoping it's a package deal. I'm good with God because I sign up to serve in areas of the church where nobody else wants to serve. He sees me, right? If you think you are saved and accepted by God because of something you have done in the past or something you will do in the future, then you're not really saved. You should have zero confidence at all. Saving faith, sincere faith, brothers and sisters, is, is the stripping away of confidence in, in anything and everything except for God because faith itself is a gift from God that we receive as a gift. And so if you're here this morning and you, you still think you're, you're doing okay, you're showing some good spiritual potential, I think God will accept me. I mean, I'm way better than the guy sitting next to me in comparison. Well, please reread verse 3. And just let that land, let that land in your heart. He saved us because of his mercy for us in his goodness and loving kindness to us. Here's the practical application there. If that's true, what Paul's saying here, if God really did save you, not because you were lovable, far from it, while you were disobedient and spiritually warped, if he loved you at your worst, why do you doubt his love for you today? You have not exhausted the, the riches of his grace and his mercy for you. I mean, his love for you and his kindness for you, church, is far greater than, far greater than you probably think. He saved us. Verse 5 and 6, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. I wish I had more time here, but Paul's point is simply that there is no salvation without rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit. That's the sense of regeneration. In other words, unless we become new people, new hearts with new desires and new loves, none of us would ever naturally turn to God. Unless the Spirit, the Holy Spirit works in us, we would not naturally desire eternal life with God. You must be born again. That is, regenerated by the Holy Spirit. So practically, when God saves us, when he saved you, he didn't just repair your heart. He gave you a brand new heart. He didn't just refine you, smooth out some of those rough edges, tweak a little bit here and there. He regenerated you. He gave you new life, new resurrection life. So what is true about all of us in verse 3 is no longer true about us in Christ. If you have put your faith in Christ, well, then verses 4 through 7 now describe you. That's who you are. And notice then the whole point of God's 
great salvation. Verse 7, he saved us so that being justified by his grace, we might hope for a good life now. Now, that's not what it says. Some of you are actually reading, paying attention. That's good. By being justified by his grace, we might have all our dreams come true. Being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We are justified by his grace. That's a legal term. Justification is a legal declaration. So it speaks of being made right before God. I mean, if we're taking verse 3 seriously, we're not right with God. But if we're taking verse 7 seriously, somehow we are then right with God. How possibly does that happen? Certainly not something that we do ourselves or we do to ourselves. On account of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, Verse 3, people as we all once were, we are declared righteous, holy, saints. We're in fact given the very perfections and righteousness of Jesus. All of that credited to us. They're credited, if you will, to our account. Now this isn't a perfect analogy, but let's say at the end of this month I get my bank statement from my bank. It's got my name on the top, Jeff B., and underneath, much to my chagrin, but not to my surprise, there's just a couple pages of zeros. Everything that I've earned. Zeros. A lot of zeros. But somehow this month, my bank statement got mixed up with, well, with another Jeff B., Jeff Bezos. <laughs> it could happen. Founder of Amazon, I think this last week, he's worth $211.4 billion. And all of his, let's just assume that Jeff Bezos doesn't invest any money, he just likes to see a lot of zeros in his bank account, but he's got zeros that actually matter, and let's just assume that all of his 211 somehow is on my bank statement. It made its way into my bank account. I was credited with something that I did not earn, I can never do, I can never work long enough or hard enough for us. And the other Jeff, Bezos, he gets all my zeros in his bank statement. I can imagine he's, he's not all that happy when he gets his bank statement. Now obviously this, this isn't a perfect analogy because Jeff Bezos and I don't share the same bank. And if, if something like that were to happen, I'm pretty sure I would hear from his legal team before I even got to Arby's. They would let me know. When God justifies you, the very goodness and righteousness and perfection and purity and excellencies of Christ are deposited in your account. You can't earn them. You can't work hard enough for them. You can work the rest of your life. No, it's, it's God's gift. It's God's grace. And Christ takes all of, well, all of our zeros he takes them upon himself. So our legal status as sinners then is, is forever changed. It's wiped away. But here's what that means. Students, no matter how hard you work at school and get good grades, you can never be justified before a holy God by your good grades. Parents, no matter how invested you are in your parenting, 
you will never be justified because of how well your kids turn out. No matter how much money you make, how much money you give away, no matter how many rungs of the corporate ladder you climb, you're never going to be justified by your career. I'm not justified by any sermon I preach. Praise God. Like, my salvation is not at stake every time I get up to preach. And that is great news. We're justified by the grace of God. And we become heirs of God by his grace. If left to ourselves, verse 3, we get what we deserve and we become, or well, we, that leads exactly to spiritual death. But in verse 7, we get what Jesus has earned. We get what Jesus deserves. We get his reward. We get God. We get a relationship with God. We get eternal life with God. And so, yes, Christmas reminds us of a whole lot of things. But at the very least, it reminds us that God still delights to save and to rescue sinners from their sins. Santa Claus can't do that. The Christmas spirit can't do that. The Christmas season and all of its entrappings, I can't do that, but Jesus can. So if you don't know this great salvation in Christ that we've been talking about this morning, then verse 3 is still your reality. But you're not without hope, but you must be born again. And I would pray that today would be your day of salvation, that you would not keep stiff-arming Jesus, that you would fall on your knees, repent of your sins, turn to Christ, and be saved. He would delight to save you. And if you are a Christian here today, well, this is, this is for all of us. This is for us as the church, isn't it? Perhaps your Christian life has become a little bit drab, ho-hum, a little boring, maybe. Or maybe there's just assumed or forgotten the gospel. A bit of spiritual malaise has kind of set in. Well, this is for you. Take a deep breath. Inhale, exhale the gospel. It's good for your soul. It's necessary for your soul. Let's remember who we once were and then rejoice in who we are now in Christ and we are who we are in Christ. Why? Because he saved.